0: Hey, folks, my name is Andy Sido, and welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is founding member, clarinetist and saxophonist of Brothers of Brass, Armando Lopez. Greetings. Welcome back to the show. I appreciate you tuning in. My guest today is Armando Lopez. We've talked about doing this a couple times in the past, and I'm glad uh, we were we were able to get together. Uh, Armando and I first met; he was still a teenager. We talk about it during the during the episode, but he was sixteen, seventeen, something like that, and I was, I think, a sophomore in college, and I'd been asked to join this ensemble at CU Denver called the Claim Jumpers, which is a trad jazz, New Orleans style music, in general. Um, ensemble and uh yeah at the time it was it was one of those ensembles you wanted to be in if if you were a a performance major at CU Denver and so I went and tried out and uh, ended up getting to be in the ensemble and I loved the music I had you know a year or so before that I had I first discovered Anders Osborne and Tab Benoit um and a little bit before that Henry Butler and Dr. John and um you know all, all these great musicians out of New Orleans, and they all had something in common, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. It was just this cool, uh, it was this cool sound that I loved. And so when I got to join the Claim Jumpers, you know, I, I was really into that style of music, and I really, um, I I started adapting, you know, the stride style and the boogie style into my into my songwriting and my playing, and went so far as to uh my with my band not have a bass player but instead have a sousaphone player and instead of having uh another guitarist i had a sax so armando was that sax player we met in claim jumpers we played in claim jumpers we did a couple duo gigs together and then uh, he was in my band for a while uh, and it was it was bass drums armando was on sax and um tuba steve Stephen glenn was on the sousaphone and greg jemba was on drums as a part of that ensemble and we the very first uh, andy sito record is done with uh with that group of guys and it, it was a lot of fun and you know we ended up uh doing different projects uh, armando and i did all of us ended up going on to different projects but i think fondly back uh, on those days in that record um it was it was I don't know it was an interesting sound it was a lot of fun and, and discovering new sounds and ideas anyway Armando is just a fantastic musician he's one of those people that you notice immediately you hear you hear how he sounds and the way he plays and he's very fluid he's very comfortable on his instrument it, it really is a voice for him a great saxophonist plays all the different sized saxophones <laughs> plays the clarinet and plays a, a lot of other strange instruments that he didn't even know um, existed as well um, if you follow him on social media you'll see videos of him playing you know like 20-foot banjos and stuff I know I don't think he has a 20-foot banjo but um, anyway great dude great musician always exploring new sounds and he's somebody that really really fell in love with the, with the New Orleans style of music and um, ended up starting Brothers of Brass um, a few years ago in Denver, and it's a brass band, which is something that Denver, uh, I don't think had seen before Brothers of Brass came along, and uh, they they started off busking all around 16th Street, and uh, I think most people absolutely loved it, a few people didn't, you know, they thought it was too loud or too invasive or whatever, they're wrong, but... Um, And they they also, the group was really at the forefront of a lot of these, you know, a lot of these protests as well. And they've been activists um, in what they believe in, and uh, they've really been leaders in the community. They've got some music out on Spotify as well. Um, I Can't Breathe was an EP that came out uh, back in 2020. Uh, They released a single earlier this year called Freedom. They have a couple other, um, they have another single called Legal state from 2020 and then an EP called Quarantine that came out in 2020. and they have a brand new album, Street Life Volume One that's dropping July 10th. So right after this episode comes out, um, and I think Armando's gonna send me a track to play at the end of the episode as well. So um, hopefully you'll get to you'll get to hear one of those songs. Um, anyway, good stuff. He's a marvelous musician. he's been a friend for years. And I'm very happy to have him on the podcast. I'm trying to think if there was any other uh, things I wanted to say. I don't want to give give away too much because he says it all in the interview. I should say as well about Armando that besides being a fabulous musician and um, playing with Brothers of Brass and being an activist, he also has another full time job that has nothing to do with music. Um, he went to he graduated from School of Mines a couple years back, and he'll talk about that job. And is also part of the energy committee. Excuse me, the energy committee in Denver. So he does a lot of uh, just a lot of great things for the community. I think that's all. Without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Armando Lopez. If you'd like to help out this podcast in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com/slash/andy/sydow. Um, I put up exclusive content from this podcast as well as my music career, and you can help out for as little as $3 a month. Quick thanks to our sponsors. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, go to pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. Visit NarratorRF for simple and affordable licensing for sync. If for any sponsorship inquiries, shoot me an email, middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Armando, what's up? What's up, Andy? It's, we've, we've never done a Zoom before, I'm, but uh, it's good to see your face. We got to play together. I guess it's been over a year now. but
1: uh, Yeah, but we've known each other uh, since we were young, young little tykes.
0: I first met you at, when you were, I mean, you were a teenager. I think you were like seven, 16 uh-huh. or 17.
1: <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, just before graduating high school. And I think, or just after graduating high school, you were in the Claim Jumpers, if I'm remembering correctly. hmm Yeah, you were playing keys, playing that Dixie piano.
0: Yeah. piano And we had a hotshot <laughs> saxophone player come in one week. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, I was uh, with the Denver Jazz Club Youth All-Stars. It's how I uh, how I got connected there um, through Ed Canova, who's a educator out here. There's a, a lot of marching bands, great marching band work. And, you know, he's like uh, one of the panels of judges every year. They would have marching bands, state competitions. And he had uh, a high school, real good high school band, like honor group he put together called the Dixie Dogs. And the dude just knew how to, I mean, this is going to sound weird. It sounds weird to say it, but he knew how to really, like, hustle education. You know, he, he, like, put together, like, little band and won a bunch of awards and just built a really awesome career off of education. And when when he was uh, done as a full-time teacher, he he made this other, like, high school statewide honor band that rehearsed in Denver at the Old Fletcher Hinton. Um, And it was the Denver Jazz Club Youth All-Stars. And I always thought that was a mouthful and they should find out a better name, but they never did. It's still called that. And I was in the first year of that uh, organization and I was in its, uh, what do they call it? I guess a founding member, um, played some clarinet, learned how to do the, you know, Dixie clarinet strides. That was a ton of fun. Learned, uh, you know, a little bit about the history, jazz history. I mean, he did a great job with that. And then, you know, the Claim Jumpers was the next logical choice because Bill Clark was doing the same thing at the collegiate level there at uc denver yeah and uh to my knowledge eric's still doing that right
0: eric's eric staffelt i think took that over and it's still i mean i know he took it over but i think he's still doing it yeah
1: yeah and that i mean for me in my life that had a huge impact on me you know i've taught me a lot about new orleans music and education and you know coming out i'm from the west coast i'm from los angeles moved out here to denver and um you know, when I was still in high school. And so for me, I'd never been out there. So just to learn about it through the history of jazz and playing music, and then later to have, you know, a New Orleans, uh, real real proper New Orleans tuba player come out into my life and just, you know, met him on the street busking. That ended up like really deciding a lot for me because, you know, I just learned so much about, yeah, music and street music and horns and playing. And just being uh, opportunistic and entrepreneurial, and all the other spirits in New Orleans and music, and, um, yeah, that's that's where we that's that's how long we know each other, Andy. Since,
0: since way a, back, then.
1: a long time. And
0: was that was that was yeah. that tuba player, that sousa player that you met? Was that Steve that you? No, to? No, uh,
1: I was talking about Khalil. See, I knew from Steve though taught me what what I needed <laughs> out on the street a couple times on a bus with tuba Steve. Stephen Glenn. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, man, the, the sousaphone is the only tool for the job of street music, in my opinion. I mean, like, that's a bold, bold big statement, but I'll defend it. So, like, yeah. a s- string bass or, did like, electronic amplification, you know, those things, um, strings in general, I mean, you can't hear them. Like, they're, they're just acoustically, like, not anywhere near the volume of a, a brass horn. And so without amplifying those things, which, you know, brings a number of troubles too, you got to invest in your equipment. It can get damaged in the rain. You got to haul that shit. There's, there's so many impediments to being amplified um, batteries, but um, acoustically, you know, on, on the horns, you, you just have so much less investment in, in all those things. And you just get all the payout if you have a brass band and, and on the street, people like, you know, they don't want to, you know, when you're busking, they don't maybe want to pay attention to you. They maybe just want to walk right on by. Maybe they consider you like a panhandler or maybe they're just, you know, uh, whatever else is running through their mind. You know, they're on their way to lunch. They're too busy. They're, you know, you know, with their girl, they're feeling a little like, uh, you know, a little intimidated, you know, whatever number of reasons people don't want to enjoy you. And you kind of have to break down all those barriers. And to do that, you know, volume and specifically, I think bass frequency do those things more, um, more formidably than than anything else and so you pair up a bass drum you know someone's beating with their hands which is much much louder than a a a drum sets bass drum even like the pedal you know and the and the muting and all that it can only get so loud like someone's banging on that thing with a bass drum mallet um you get a lot of you get a lot of amplitude out of that so you couple that with a susaphone and you can really uh hit hard and, and speak to people
0: yeah. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. And I mean you've been out doing that doing that for a while now and I guess before before we jump more into that like let's go back a little bit. You you grew up in Los Angeles and when did you come out uh to Colorado and when did you first uh discover music and discover the horn?
1: Um let's see. I um discovered music in public school in Los Angeles. Um they had really great public school and music education out there. And then specifically, I happen to live next to a performing arts magnet school in Los Angeles that was called Millican Middle School. And uh, the magnet system out there, if you know anything about it, it um, you know, you uh, typically have to audition. You typically there's some like pre-test, especially at the middle school level. You have to get like, you know, gifted and talented education or you have to, you know, your parents have to really put you on that track to get into a, a magnet school by the time you're in the sixth grade. Um, i happen to live next to one and so i was going to school with um you know people that were busting in from all over the uh, all over the city and uh specifically i think most notable um my classmates in that um in that school year ended up to go on to start a band called moonchild and which is like a you know internationally recognized you neo know, soul like act of our generation so it's they were putting out pretty quality players you know <laughs> like at those public schools and uh yeah i continued you know i went to north hollywood high school for a year and uh then uh, my parents moved me out to aurora colorado um because how the housing market you know they wanted to buy a house they didn't want to rent and i was uh you know we had rented till i was whatever 14 and um they wanted to buy a house and they were like oh colorado you know aurora seems nice Denver seems cool like you know no earthquakes seems all right So we moved out there from LA and me, like, you know, being in the 10th grade, having grown up in music all my life, moving to Aurora was, you know, the culture shock of a lifetime that, that like, I've still never recovered from that going from a place that, you know, really valued music and the culture and performance. And then a place where like, you know, for example, like I never knew that a band geek was a real thing where I was from. Um, You know, if you, where I was from, like, if you played theater, you know, if you were like, singing in the choir you know playing horn like any of that stuff like you were cool you know you were just like that was with it like we knew it was cool like hollywood you know we like we market media to the world so it's like you know we know those things are are you know respectable
0: um (laughs) yeah
1: you know, and then moving out to Aurora and then there's like, yeah, I mean, the band kids like we're not regarded. (laughs) in that.
0: And what, why do you think if you could put your finger on why that is, I mean, is is that because industries in LA is that because of the kind of people mm -hmm. that are in Colorado? I mean, why would you say that?
1: Yeah. I mean, in a word, I guess, I guess culture, I guess, um, you know, specifically I I think suburbs too. If I had moved to Denver, if I, you know, if I got a DSA or like, even like East High School, you know, if I had been like in the city, I think I would have seen those opportunities. I don't think it would have been such a shock. The suburbs were the shock. And, and you know, Aurora even markets itself as the all-American city. So maybe it's just like, you know, moving from the, an urban center, maybe even to like, you know, just suburbs, I guess. was, But specifically like, you know, there was the racial element too, like where I went to yeah. school. Like, you know, everyone around me was brown. You know, I, went, I was in L.A., you know. And then uh, I remember like the first time I got called the brown kid. Cause I was hanging out with white kids and that, that was the other thing is my parents didn't teach me Spanish. So that was the other crazy thing about my wife is, you know, I look the way I do, but my parents never taught me how to speak Spanish. And so moving to, you know, my friends had always been white kids, like, you know, or black kids or whatever. Um, it, was, it was Mexicans that I could not get along with because they were always, you know, speaking Spanish. Yeah. Um, so, you know, moving out to Aurora, all my friends were like, I remember the first time I got called a brown kid was by my, uh, this girl I was dating her brother and, and she just he, he just called me. Yeah. Oh yeah, the brown kid. I was like, that just sounded weird. And I was like, okay, I guess Not that sure. is I guess it has, has flipped. But um, yeah, I mean, in a word, culture, man. You know, like I think that you know Denver has a lot of it, but it's very distinct from you know even Golden or Boulder. You know, I mean, look at those two cities. It's like they're right the hell next to each other, and they you know they couldn't be more different in the way <laughs> the way they act. The yes. way they act, and I feel like even Denver's zip codes are reflection of that like you yeah. know we got a lot of it's a small city but uh but it's got all the makings of a major metro man it's got its own distinct distinct little environments and you know as a musician we've been all up in all, all of it <laughs> you know we've taken yeah. gigs all up and down the front range um and so that's you know it comes with the territory of being a musician uh, you get this uh get this opportunity to kind of just uh, experience a lot of different cultures you know so as an yeah. adult i mean you know having the culture shocked out of you at a young age i mean that's i think that's a great thing for like you know as an adult to just be accustomed to that because it just makes you like you know i feel like the opportunities i've had to travel especially with the street i mean on an extreme on you know i went and played street music in like most of the major cities in the continental u.s and like you know the first time i like first time i saw many cities was by like going in the center of the downtown and horn out my horn with my band and just busking for tips and just seeing what happened.
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I would say my, my high school was very much the same way, you know, it was like, uh, it, being in band was not, um, was not the cool thing to do. There was like six of us in the pep band, you know, and it was not, uh, we weren't cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: There's the football players you're playing for, right? Yeah, they, they that were was, there
0: was the football players, that was the reason no, we were there. Shit. Yeah. Uh Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. But you you start playing uh, you know, in high school, like you said the De- the Denver the Denver Jazz Youth All-Stars or whatever the long word oh. is. Yeah. Um the Denver Jazz Club. And then Youth the uh, and then the Claim Jumpers. And, you know, obviously this this traditional uh, jazz has a big... Man, if we were in person, I'd ask you for some of that.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll take another one for both of us.
0: Yeah, very good. Um, You know, this New Orleans music obviously had a profound effect on you. And even when you entered the Claim Jumpers, and I don't know, I was probably a sophomore in college and you were just graduating high school. I mean, you had this gigantic, uh, vocabulary of that kind of music. Um, I mean, at what point did you dig in and say, I want to learn this stuff. This is what I want. Uh, this is what I want to do musically.
1: Um, I'm going to say it was somewhere between like trying to, um, hustle like a, or try to lead a swing band, you know, to play swing dances. Um, Because they, um, you know, in that sense, I feel like the Denver Jazz Club really got a return on their investment in my life is because, you know, they're a preservation society. So they like, they know that it's, I mean, everybody, like the average age, I'm going to say of that, of that club is like probably in their sixties, you know, if not, if not even more, like they're, they're getting up there and they know that if they don't invest in this music, uh, it's going to die. You know, If, if if we don't invest in the education of young people of like how to like, play swing horn you know dixieland horn it's just gonna fade out um and so you know leading swing bands it it feels good to be kind of a keeper of that flame um but as far but then when i saw like the other side of new orleans music which is like the more modern brass bands you know the the bands that are actually living out there in the streets hustling right now i think that's really when it uh when it all kind of came together for me because you know my plan i'd I'd already been out on the street busting myself in denver i went out uh you know i used to take the bus as a kid to just like go downtown and and hustle i mean by myself on a horn i would never do that nowadays like the return on investment is not really worth the time and it's a hard blow you know being out there by yourself uh i mean i do now with my tracks but that's a whole different story. i didn't even have tracks i was just like bare horn just just played Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: um you know that's how i met that's how i met uh khalil he was traveling the country busking and he's you know come from new orleans and in the south marching bands like the southern marching band tradition and he just always was just rolling with these one players that were like packed such a crazy punch you know i was like whoa like who are these guys uh when well, they came rolling through denver and i just heard uh i heard him playing that do what you wanna you know just that boom 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 you know
0: yeah i yeah. uh,
1: just rolled over and i was like hey man i need some of this i need like a tuba player and he fucking moves to Colorado, you know, to start a band, Buskin. And so that was really what, what did it for me, man. It was just playing in the streets all the time, playing New Orleans music, playing Rebirth, Brass Band, playing Hot 8 songs, you know, listening to Stooges Brass Band. You know, there's just so many, so much talented fucking music out of New Orleans. John Batiste, you know, Trombone Shorty, Dumps the Funk, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, and so I just dived in it. And my, my plan's always been real, like, Real tone centric on saxophone you know i just like uh i met that dude uh derek brown the uh beatboxing beatbox sax guy yeah um you know so if you haven't seen derek brown please check him out he's got awesome education content and uh i uh i met him he was playing with a band called low spark out of chicago and he he told me uh you know i got to talk i was like man you're so famous saxophone you know like like, uh, and he was like, yeah, man, he'd heard me at that point. He was like, yeah, I like your tone. It's kind of your thing. And, uh, that left a huge impression on me. And then I met Jeff Coffin, um, who, uh, you know, if you don't know, plays with Dave Matthews band, yeah. as well as being a you know, real story sax player in his own right. Um, he, uh, we were at, uh, the Nightwalk Kulo Festival. And I was playing Barry Sax and Soprano Sacks. And so I caught his eye doing that. I was doubling those. And then uh and then he just told me, you know, unbidden, he was like, Hey man, when Shorter once told me, Your tone will take you to the future. And I was like, Wow, Jeff Coffin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna remember that for the rest of my life. Right. Um, so uh yeah, and, and that's exactly how like, you know, New Orleans players, that's also their bag is um you know playing very uh accessible motifs uh and and shapes sure uh but delivering it with phrasing that is like you know very expressive and uh coupled and so you need a powerful tone on the horn to pull that off um you need like a, a the kind of tone that just you know plays a single note and you're not bored yeah
0: yeah it, the when i went down to new orleans one thing i noticed was it seemed like everybody played every note like it was their last in a, I mean, it <laughs> yeah. just, you no, know, it? um, uh, you know, and, and totally different, totally different and amazing culture than, than what you see in really any other town probably. And, you know, when you started doing the brass band thing with Khalil in Denver, I don't think Denver had seen something like that yet. A brass band, and then busking around, uh, 16th street around downtown. And I know at first, I don't know if you guys still have, have issues, but I know at first, uh, you know, there was the people that loved you guys and then there was, uh, people and other buskers that did not, um, you know, and I mean, what was, what was that like? I mean, how do you feel like you were received initially?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've seen so much of Denver, you know, and, and just, um, so the the context of that is that we, when we first met and, and Mikela first moved here, we played downtown on the mall, um, you know, as much as possible. And he had at that time um, got a court order because he had been arrested for, for for playing at the Performing Arts Complex on a public sidewalk. So they went so far; he he played there, and you know, the security was was used to sweeping buskers away and where they fucked up is that 14th street is actually a public that's public property right there even though it's like that sidewalk and at the at the end of it um you know they were taking measures to maybe uh you know change the law to accommodate you know what we ended up doing there but uh which was um you know playing there relentlessly because Khalil got an arrested playing at that spot on the public sidewalk facing the arts complex um They arrested him, and where they also fucked up, they took his horns. They took his horns and confiscated them and kept them as evidence. And that's really where it got messed up, because they were making all their money busking. They had this, like, you know, story to tell the judge, and the judge uh, basically wrote them a free pass to just play there. And that's why he moved here. (laughs) And then he hit me up, and he's like, hey, man, you want to start that? So anyway, we started playing playing at that spot a whole bunch uh playing downtown to you know boost that money and there was a point or at our maximum we were providing a living wage for eight musicians um wow just from playing working maybe you know with the arts complex you work maybe like an hour a night or something you know with the other playing three hours or something so um you know it's, it's hard work on the horn we definitely busted our chops but uh we saw a lot of Denver, you know, we were just outside playing as much as we could. Rockies games, um, you know, busking. And when, you, when you're doing all the spots, you're going to run into every other, you know, because we're going for the best spot at all times. Like, you know, it's, it was like the mentality. The most people, the most money, the most everything. And, sure. um, and so, uh, yeah, we're going to see every other busker on the way. And so, yeah, we're loud as hell. We don't share space very well um it's like impossible you know unless you want to cram us in a corner to even try to do a thing and that would dissuade most people but um but yeah honestly man like the other buskers thing i mean brett dallas is the most infamous of those really um that dude put out a really really funny uh, youtube video about how we're like a menace and uh he actually accused me
0: or oh yes i remember uh,
1: Relate. He relayed a reddit comment that he was complaining about us on on denver reddit and um someone on that thread uh accused me of holding up their friend with a gun it was uh they were i guess they he had posted a video of us and he was like oh that uh clarinet player uh you know held up my friend with a gun and it's just a comment on reddit you can just you know it's archived you can go see it and um and Brett was like, "Oh no, these guys must be," you know. And at that at that point, I was like, in, you know, incredibly a pacifist. I didn't own any guns, um, and you know, I, um, you know, I didn't have reason to fuck around with that. I was, I was, you know, I was going to school. I was doing all these things. I was like trying to be an activist. So I was like loading on my plate with like everything I could. And this dude's like saying I'm held, holding up somebody with a gun. It's like. Everyone that knew me was like, "Wow, this is completely unsubstantiated and uh, seemingly racially biased." But um, right, the uh, he went on to he went on to spread that rumor in that video, and then also in print media in the westward. And because it made it to the print media, actually, um, I now have a case for a libel suit that I never pursued. But it's easy; it'd be so easy. <laughs> he just he followed all the rules. He like didn't confirm a rumor made it to print media like i have like a case for libel against this dude but um but it stands there you know with its 400 views and he just like talks about how we're a menace and uh how we're just like all the businesses and all the other buskers can't stand it. which you know i believe is true in, in some respect but the you know we are allowed as hell. I, I do know that there's a lot of people that dislike the, the municipal level yeah. and um when we did get a ticket it was from the department of public health which i think is you know the department that manages sounds that are so loud that people keep complaining you know yeah sure um, so we've uh but you know the we've had really you know some angels help us out with that you know like we had uh i remember one of the guys from the parks department uh the cops were but you know we were getting the cops were showing up all the time security was calling the cops all the time and uh i don't know if he was just walking by or what happened but he was like one of the One of the guys in the mayor's office uh in the parks department and he just came up and he's like oh no you guys can play like they're not they shouldn't stop you and he just like called the chief of police and then it was like go ahead (laughs) you know (laughs) that's what it was uh so we had that um we had a great mediator with the city back at the arts complex spot because the district attorney the city attorney um the city attorney um was like slowly pressing a case with us because the arts complex you know is highly influential you know, they influence like homeless anti-homeless legislation in Denver. They like, they're they're very political. They're like in the office. You know, they're like in the city's office. They can they can make pull strings. Um, so the city attorney was like, you know, slowly squeezing on us with a decibel meter and all this other, uh, all these other measures. And we had a mediator because they had lost the case already, and so they didn't. I think they they knew that, so they didn't want to like press too hard. Um, you know, to like save. I don't know to save taxpayers some money or I guess or may not make it worse I don't know what exactly the reasoning was what they were so scared about bringing the hammer down but they did not bring the hammer down like we played their living wage for eight musicians for like probably the better part of two years I want to say it was like it was like a nice little honeypot and then um and then they put the decibel meter up with the mediator we'd like slowly would have meetings with this mediator And they put the decibel meter up, and there was really nothing we could do about it, you know? Yeah. So, uh.
0: So you weren't able to play below the decibel meter?
1: (laughs) No, not at all, because the property line is right the fuck there on 14th. And, um, and, but, you know, but it's, but it's weird. The weird part that, that has legally, I think we have some grounds on is that, um, the public to public, uh, sound decibel doesn't have like, it's not well defined. It's public to private is uh, the 55 decibel limit. And so we're playing we, like right in front of us is like not 55 decibels. It's like, um, you know, it's, it's it's private property, but it's private property that's owned by the city, which is, you know, subsequently owned by its taxpayers. Right. So it's like it's it's kind of weird. It's like we're we're the sound ordinance is being enforced on a private property, which is a which is city owned. So that I think that kind of gave us a little leverage legally, if you know we ever ended up wanting to fight it. But they just gave us a warning, and so we they just gave us a warning. Public health came one night, and they just took all our names, gave us all, served us all our warnings. And uh, it's they've been, you know, we went, we didn't play there for a while. Pushed our luck with a smaller band, you know, we're trying to make it work. But um, but yeah, man, it's it was a wild ride for sure.
0: Do you uh, think you know, it's we're still
1: playing we're still doing all that stuff
0: but do you think it's fair um the the ordinance that they put in
1: Um for private yeah absolutely I mean I don't like sounds are annoying as fuck like I don't want to be like woken up past 55 de- 55 decibels I think is like what they described it as like uh the temperature of like a normal conversation it's like f- it's like 55 decibels okay. which you know if you're like in your house or in your bed, even, you know, people don't want it. But, you know, sometimes like, do I think it's fair? I think in the case of us, like public to private, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we usually do our things at, you know, perfectly reasonable times of the day and we seem to bring more joy than agony. So it's like, you know, by like a long stretch. So, you know, I think like fairness, you know, we're trying to give back to the community too. We do also, you know, we do also like, you know subsidize a lot of justice and and consider ourselves like generally good for the community you know so we like you know we also have this like um we're kind of on a high horse with it a little bit but i think we're you know where the line starts to get blurred i mean you heard about rico jones out in Sloans lake and his uh jazz uh weekends he was doing yeah and one of his neighbors complained on him and i don't know how loud they could get i mean they probably have some sound equipment but on their front yard like I can't imagine they're like shaking the windows at these people's house, but uh, but yeah, the cops went ahead and served them because they got pushed, um, and that's real unfortunate, you know. The guys just playing some jazz, and you know one of the best sax players this town has to offer, you know by a long stretch. Yeah, and he's getting uh, you know the cops are handing him a uh, you know don't do this or we're gonna have to do this, you know we're gonna have to bring a decibel meter and shut you down, serve you a thousand dollar fine. Some should.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you guys have been, as you're kind of touching on a little bit earlier, you guys have been activists as well in, in using that voice of music, um, you know, to, to speak your truth. And, uh, you know, i you started putting out music online in 2020 as well. Um, you know, and, and, and this year, right. You guys just, you guys just, uh, put out, uh, freedom back in March. Um, yep. but you've got freedom, legal state, uh, you've got an EP called, I can't breathe. Um, and you guys are also just very vocal on issues in general that are happening in the city. How big a part of the music and the culture is that, um, for you and, and the rest of the band?
1: Um, I think in the beginning it was always a piece of it. You know, we had done some um you know, our, our biggest benefit I would say to the movement is is on the ground, um with with people and just, you know, elevating the the environment of um, you know, street movements, which I started doing way back um in like twenty fifteen with the, the first uh founding of like, you know, Black Lives Matter movement after the Ferguson um uh killings and that um, that swell was enough to kind of get me on board with just playing saxophone, and you know that was before I ever had a brass band. And you know, we're doing that with uh, no enemies in the Flowbots. And if you know the history of the Flowbots, they um, they actually gave away you know substantial money and advertising revenue to you know um, to keep their um, you know they didn't want to have their music, which is you know movement music resistance music they didn't want it uh commodified which the label you know highly disagreed with so they literally like turned down a you know large amount of money and comfort for their like for their moral beliefs and went on from that to get a step further and started like to teach people movement songs you know like um there's you know the history of resistance through like the chicano movement through segregation you know desegregation women's rights like that whole history of being in the streets has like songs and like a culture to it um and so they they kind of had this concept of creating a songbook and compiling that songbook into an album and they called it the No Enemies project and it was um you know it's kind of where i i learned a lot about nonviolent direct action about how to uh, um encourage corporate social responsibility just say it that way um and uh, that uh that history when translated to you know eventually coming with this brass band and maturing it over the years we didn't do a lot of work in the early years because i was you know like um you know we were making a lot of money and so we were doing actually what we were doing a lot more is selling out um we were just getting whatever gig could come to us so we played for you know we played for like bp's holiday party you know we uh yeah, you know it was really nice. They had a ice, they had a bar carved out of ice, an ice block. Um, what else? You know, we, we we spent most of our time just hustling gigs, but um, the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd protest really changed and really like centered that issue for us so powerfully because, you know, it was COVID. We hadn't played. Uh, you know, everything looked dark, and then all of a sudden there was this huge street movement of people pushing the boundaries of things you know and we had already kind of dabbled with some playing during COVID most of the time it was far away from people it was like in a driveway or you know sometimes literally in the street in a suburb um and uh blowing at people's houses that would hire us for like happy birthday or something we just run by their house playing their driveway you know nice and far nice and safe but then uh, the protest came and everybody was out and you know we were out there not following any restrictions just blowing horns but i think you know the police were much more worried about the impending <laughs> impending riots than a couple horn players so um so we did we did a lot of blowing and uh got a lot of covet tests but um but yeah we um we really empowered the movement in a big way i mean there were just so many people fighting for racial justice and like our you know, we're a mixed-race bass band, which I think is actually a very interesting thing about us and and lends a lot to people's perceptions of us as they see, like, you know, they see, like, this mix of racism. We're called the Brothers of Brass, right? And we have this, like, thematic element of of, of coming together in music and, um, you know, it's not completely inclusive. You know, we, we exercise a lot of male privilege, um, you know, both with the name and both just, like, playing in general. You know, if I were... If, you know if I were uh, female bodied uh there's no way in hell I would have been a street musician i don't think you know I don't think I would have gone out there and felt okay <laughs> you know i don't feel okay as as like a you know a man um and yeah, and so yeah, so um you know to walk it back, um yeah, we empowered the movement a lot with this like you know we attract a lot of attention you know we uh I had already had a history in Denver with the movement. So I knew, I knew people in the movement. So I was able to, you know, I mean, we eventually learned that nobody, so here was the crazy thing about George Floyd protests: too. There was a power vacuum in Denver um, among the left, among like the leftist activist musician, you know, I'm sorry, leftist activists. Um, The, uh, there was like the party for socialism and liberation. And then there was like this, we are one Denver group and they like they were, people were accusing we are one denver of being like uh, plants from the mayor and you know the mayor was was had a photo op like marching with this dude and so that dude was like was like yeah everybody associated with him all of a sudden i mean he had been leading night after night you know holding like some of the late night things and then he like pacified the movement in denver and so there was this, there was this crazy event where like uh the other thing that um should be noted two of the founders of black lives matter fifty two eighty in denver were um, they they 're no longer with the movement um, and uh so the the remaining member uh, you know i was i've you know had a i think i can 't remember if she like had her kids or like what happened in her life where she wasn 't available uh, for the street stuff so like they were like largely not leading marches in Denver. Uh, it was a lot, a lot of Tay Anderson, um, a lot of uh, other, other figures, but there was largely also at night, like this power vacuum where people were like, in, in, in some cases, just like fighting each other. Groups were like, we would go on a march with a group, you know, down Colfax or like, shut, you know, like doing a demonstration. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd get like physically split by like one group, like in our face being like, no, come this way to the protest of the police station, the other group's like, no, we're going to go back to the Capitol and finish it. And both sides, had, they knew like wherever we went, the sound went, everyone was going to follow. So we were, you know, we were, because of that, we were like, like political figures in Denver. We were like, we had like political power. I got uh, one, one of the guys with project blue wave um, <laughs> sent out my email. to like a bunch like city councilors. he was trying to give me like press and he called me uh, the de facto leader of Denver black lives matter, which was like, I was just like, okay, don't call me that first because that's just not true. Uh, Second of all, like, how the hell did I get here? So like this, like in like a couple of weeks, all of a sudden, like, there was like all of this, um, all this hype. And we would, uh, we would just start marches. We would, we would like decide where people went, you know, the Capitol, the, the building, the, um, civic center amphitheater. We hosted our own event. Um, called amplify black and indigenous voices which went really well we had a couple of the lettuce guys uh perform with us there at the end deitch and benny bloom um that was really awesome uh we had yeah bianca mccann uh carrie joy uh denver justice Project, which is doing a lot of really awesome work and in abolition and um yeah there's a it was a lot it was it was a very like it was a very wild time and it it just kind of cemented this like role for us in our city as like, we kind of stepped into the role. I really didn't feel ready for it. And I remember telling that to one of my friends. I was like, I don't like, this is all happening and I don't, and they just told me, you'll never feel ready. uh, Which I guess is true. But you know, since, since that wave, since that swell, I mean, it's mostly settled down. I think, Um, you know, people still see us that way and we still market that way. We've lost gigs because of it already. Yeah um yeah one of our um our fourth of july recurring gig doesn't want to have us again
0: (laughs) okay Uh, so you lost a couple gigs too
1: (laughs) yeah oh yeah definitely i'm sure you got Um, a lot
0: more than you lost though
1: um yeah i mean at the same time like we we have our street thing too you know uh so that makes us really different in the market like uh, this is something i'm really trying to figure out right now because we're back to playing and i'm trying to make the most money with the least amount of time I'm trying to grow up and like, you know, plan my stuff out a little better. Yeah. But with this street money, it's like, I mean, if that's where the most money is, that's where the most money is. And I, I just sometimes look at like, you know, the gig economy and how we fit into it. Like, you know, we're not very good at like, for example, something I'm trying to figure out. We're not very good at like, headlining. we're not very good. You know, we're really good at like opening bands, but like when it comes to selling tickets and doing all that, we're so saturated in the market because we play all the time like Buskin, we're giving away our product on the street already um, right i feel i feel like it's really hard for us to turn our like hype into like getting on stage you know and then offering something that people haven't heard or they know they will hear right you know, very soon. sure
0: sure and <laughs> uh, so you kind of in that battle of well do we just perform on the street And grow that way? Or do we need to be a little bit more exclusive and really sell a show to grow that way? Right.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's, I mean, the scale of show we'd have to dive into to pay us out is like,
0: you know, it's a lot.
1: I mean, we, we, we get a lot through those buckets, you know, we make a pretty good, pretty decent wage. Um, So night after night, it's just, uh, so we're trying to, you know, we're trying to turn that into something as well. I mean, one thing that we've been doing with that steady work, that steady, consistent, humble work, um, we've been trying to move out uh, musicians from New Orleans, and it'll it, it's worked on like some months basis, but we're really trying to get some cats to like live here, and so we've been flying them out for a lot of gigs. Like if if you look at our set we did at Levitt, um, I think uh, yeah, three three of those cats were flown in, you know. Um wow. and that's how we have a band. We fly we fly in New Orleans musicians and uh you know, musicians from some other uh, southern brass traditions too, like Texas, you know, uh Texas, Alabama. Um
0: and what's the motivation Louisiana. to bring people into Colorado as opposed to the band just saying we're going to New Orleans?
1: Um, oh yeah. Uh good question. I mean, I'm not gonna move there. Uh, anytime soon, I got a really good gig and, um, you know, I think, uh, Khalil likes it here too. Um, but yeah, we could go to New Orleans. I I do think about that. That would be easier to in some respect, but we've kind of built a big brand out here and we have this steady, like, I mean, we got to work, you know, we have hella work. I guess one of the music one of the motivations too is, um, you know, New Orleans is going to be underwater in, probably like a few decades you know maybe 50 years 60 years if the levees hold the levees were not if you look up the report from the army corps of engineers the levees that they were able to build in the time that they needed to build them um are not actually scheduled to last you know all that long um like they're not going to last 100 years for example so um knowing that it i feel like you know given my other like work i do and you know with the city i'm like on this um on this energy committee and um you know it's in the forefront of my mind a lot so for me i'm like you know maybe you guys should get off the coast and come up you know come up in some elevation save yourself from climbing the ocean but um i mean there's that aspect of it there's uh you know the fact that we could really corner this new orleans market out here if we just had a couple more cats you know a couple Absolutely. more like heavy hitting horn players um and uh yeah i mean my family's up here and all that, too. I just want to stay.
0: Of course. Well, yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to leave a place like this. We live in a great spot. Um, yeah, but you,
1: I love Denver, man. Really.
0: You have a couple other passions, uh, too. You know, I mean, you just talked about you're on an energy committee here in town, and you also um, have a job you do during the day. Um that has absolutely nothing to do with music and you went to school for it. <laughs> and that's a, uh, that's yeah. a huge passion for you as well. Talk about yeah, it that is. a little bit.
1: All right. Um, yeah. You remember when I, uh, when I told you way back when that I was going to go to school. Yeah, I you did know, it. I, you and Justin, you and Justin were in the car and I was like, Oh man, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to school. Uh, and part of the motivation was that man, some of those UC Denver cats that I met, some UC Denver graduates, alumni, I met them and they were so like jaded and upset about, I wanted to go to school for music business. And I met those dudes and they were like, <laughs> yeah. they were like, man, they were like, I, I think one of them was really like, I told him I was going to go to school for music business. And he like laughed in my face. He like laughed in my face. And he's like, there's no such thing as a music business. And they just like, they they were all just like, I don't know, kind of like, they're like mid thirties, like faded rock star types. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but they were like, some like faded rock star type dudes that were like real like jaded and sad and generally depressive and i was like you know maybe it wasn't the most like salient decision but i saw that and i was like i do not want to do this i do not want to be these guys you know so i just uh i took some time you know looked into uh careers and salaries and stuff i just liked and you know i gravitated toward uh toward um well i didn't know at first i just wanted i just knew i wanted to go back to school for some so i went to community college um right around then i uh i took this um very intense dose of a psychedelic that just completely wrecked me and like basically caused me to have something called an ego death and when i came out of that when i came out of that i had this like insane motivation to conquer life like it was like it was it was very strange. I had, this is like, I was like a born, like alive again for the first time, relearning everything, like feeling like it was like, I just like peeled like a veil off my eyes and all of a sudden I could see. And so I decided I was going to go back to school. Uh, give it a shot. You know, my first time around at school wasn't great. Uh, I got like C's the second time around, I was just so energized, so motivated breezed through community college. Um, you know, got a, you know, did well enough that um, my teacher recommended me over to um, one of the professors at Mines, who was working as a solid state physicist. And he took me under his wing in his lab. And so I I started doing right at a community college, even before I took a class at Mines, I was um, doing material science of semiconductors. And I had gotten a really cool lab internship before that. So I had a little experience about what to do in a lab, but over at Mines, it was like, you know, they had a lot of department of energy money. They were working with the national renewable energy lab. They just had a lot of resources. And for the undergraduates, they were really accustomed to just having kids come in there and just, uh, and just learn. So it was just a really stellar environment. Um, so yeah, it was very mechanical. Like I got to work my hands. Uh, I got to make like, you know, the first I started like building furnaces and, doing like real low level tech work. And then slowly they let me start to do the chemistry of the stuff, which was playing with uh, playing with very pure metals in a, something called a glove box. Um, so glove box is a controlled atmosphere environment uh, that they pipe in either nitrogen or argon. And you have a gas purifier in there, the reactive uh, elements that will suck up all the oxygen and water out of the air. And so that lets you play with things that are usually like really don't like water and oxygen. So like, um, you know, things that go boom, um, a lot of them, semiconductors, very, uh, things that pyrophorics that it was both pyrophorics and then, you know, some poisonous stuff like mercury. Um, and we made, um, it was a really cool lab. We made crystals, uh, the crystals that go in, you know, computers like uh, semiconductors. So we, would, but we were using them for this energy application. Uh, they're called thermoelectrics. So they're a material that will, you know, if one side's hot, one side's cold, uh, one side will turn positive, one side will turn negative, and you can actually get electrical work out of that. Um, so we were making those crystals. We we're doing experimental synthesis. So, you know, we would we would mix up the elements and do this heating profile to them um but yeah so I got a good time in that lab and then out of college I took a break that's right when I was in that lab was when I met Khalil for the first time so I was like on this great trajectory I was like thinking I was going to do this like academic work I was thinking I was going to like you know maybe stay in science and just have music be a fun hobby or something and I met Khalil and it was just so fun it was just so fun being on the street playing music making money like in an hour or two hours you know after school it was like it was a good gig. I mean, it was, it was a good time in my life. I'm not gonna lie. It might might've even been some glory day status, but, um, yeah. But yeah, out of school, I was like, man, I'm going to just put this down. I mean, it, the chemistry degree at mines was grueling. It was, uh, it was not fun. You know, it was, <laughs> it was very difficult. Um, so, you know, I did all right. Graduated. Um, I, while I was at that lab, I cough, I co-authored two uh, papers, in the Royal Society of Chemistry for Experimental Synthesis of Thermoelectrics. And,
0: um... I'm not even going to ask you what that means.
1: Yeah. I just... I wave (laughs) that dick around sometimes. Just sometimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I, uh... You know, took some time off, played a bunch of street music, and then once the DCPA shut us down, I went and got a job at a lab, um, out here in Denver, which does, uh, a lot of really great, uh, great battery stuff um so yeah i'm just working at uh working in batteries um at a tech startup and i've been doing that for the last two plus years um covid was nice because i didn't have to well okay first of all covid was not nice but it was a chance to uh you know focus on another gig for a while and i was really grateful for it because i was watching my musician friends just, just Yeah, fucked up. (laughs) You know, like everyone was just—I can't even imagine. I didn't miss a single day of work. I never skipped a beat. Um, so I, yeah, I um, I feel for everyone. If you're out there and you're recovering from COVID, you know, hope you feel a little better. You did it, made it through.
0: I think uh, one one more thing to mention too, um, is you know the Brothers of Brass lost a band member very recently um azad and uh you know what kind of impact has has that had on on you and your life and music
1: oh man yeah getting home with that one um yeah we lost our bass drummer his name was um full name which he never liked uh people calling him but for some reason he made it his his facebook name still krishna swami ramachandran azad uh, he was an incredibly gifted uh, musician, drummer, um, you know, just all-around instrumentalist. He could play everything. He was a, he'd studied music composition, so he just had this ear for songwriting and just full of life. Really great video game player, too. Um, we spent many nights just playing. Uh, you know, he was a real pro. We would play Soul Calibur and what's the other one, Super Smash Brothers. and Oh, no. Uh, is that it? No. Which one's the one where they fight? they call it just called smash
0: yeah you know what i haven't i haven't played (laughs) since pac-man came out so i don't know (laughs) oh
1: okay yeah soul Calibur was always my jam but um but yeah he was a he was a great guy and and we lost him for reasons unknown his family's keeping the autopsy private but they um you know we we just uh we all miss him and it was real sudden and out of nowhere and um and what has it done to our life and our music? Well, we play uh, we play funeral songs now. We play a couple of them. We'll do, um, you know, we've been doing I'll Fly Away, Everset, which is, um, you know, definitely a New Orleans funeral song. And uh, there's this one by Hade called Homies um, that's just about, you know, your, your fallen brothers and, and bandmates. And, uh, yeah, so we've been playing those songs and, just remembering dude um and i guess uh, practically we're you know we're down one more person to call with drums it's so hard finding cats for this band because the new orleans sound is so particular you know it's so um so niche it's hard to find players that drummers can you know like you can we've had like some slayer drum set players get on a get on new orleans marching drum and and just and just eat shit, really. Like we are yeah, not sure. to any names. But a couple of cats have like I was like, Man, you play a slayer drum set. You like you got your style, but like this is just not your style. Like and you know, it's that's not a criticism or anything, it's just a it's just a fact. And um it's the same with horn players, you know, it's we uh we have such a such a niche little thing that we do that it's hard to find horn players that have the you know the endurance to play projection volume tone improvisational style like all those things and if we're not cruising at like six horns we're lacking that's kind of what it is right um so uh so yeah i mean losing his eye was was a a pitfall man that was rough and uh still kind of processed it wasn't that long ago it was only like two months ago um
0: yeah yeah very very recent and and Liked by everybody, you know. Um, I, I only got to play with him a couple times. He was going to sub a Canada tour uh, that my band was doing uh, that my drummer couldn't do, and that was right before COVID hit. So we didn't end up going on that tour, but but uh, we were supposed to spend a couple weeks on the road together. And we did a couple rehearsals, and I remember uh, one day after the rehearsal, we went and grabbed a bite to eat and then went to the bank to get, uh, what do you call it, what do you have to get to? to go over to go to another country the passport but then you have to we had to get it notarized we did his passport notarized, and he was telling me about how everyone confuses his name like what's his first name and what's his last name and uh anyway we were joking about that with the uh, the bank teller whoever was whoever's notarizing it but um you know with my my few times playing with him he was just a, a wonderful dude and uh you know everybody who i know played with him um had only positive things to say so it's definitely a big loss for the for the denver community
1: yeah absolutely r.i.p
0: that's my conversation with armando lopez of brothers of brass it was great catching up with him again armando thanks for coming on the show i sure appreciate it um once again If you'd like to support the podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash andysidow, S-Y-D-O-W, and you can support for as little as $3 a month. If you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, uh, give it a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a second, and it really is a huge help. Um, What else? Any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, shoot them to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. I mentioned in the pre-interview monologue that we might get to hear a song off uh, off the new brothers of brass record and we do armando just sent this over it's called bounce that so we're gonna play out have a great week and i look forward to chatting with you next time